prayer for them, and and it looks like God's blessing their ministry there to have families with, with children, which I didn't see but one or two children there the whole time I was there. So that was exciting for me. Um, and just keep praying for Pastor LaPointe and the congregation there, uh, the development of the property. So they did put in the... But uh, praise the Lord. Right, so let's go Lord in prayer before we get into our study tonight. It's going to be a little bit abbreviated, but uh, it's okay. Lord God, we do thank you for the opportunity that you give us to share in your work in other places and for the uh, joy of seeing these people celebrating this building and using it to reach their community for Christ. And Lord, we continue to pray that you might direct in their lives and encourage them in their work. They might stay true to your word and seek it out and communicate it effectively that you might bring many to know you as Savior and Lord and to be uh, built up and strengthened through the ministry there. We do pray for Pastor LaPointe. We pray for the Pastor Perdeston as well and the orphanages he's involved in, his church. Lord, we pray you might just have your hand on them in a very powerful way, and we thank you for them. And Lord, now as we look into your word, we pray for your Spirit's direction and guidance and instruction uh, to not only gain information, but also to seek to bring this into our life. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I shared last week, I want to take a little step away from our study of our government and really look into the text before us in chapter 16, 17, 18 of uh, 1 Samuel. And I want to do this because I didn't want you to... Uh, it's easy in the focus on one aspect to lose track of the fact that we are trying to do a verse-by-verse, uh, verse, so to speak, expositional uh, handling of God's Word as we do in other, any other uh, study, even though our focus is more topical. So this is kind of a, a hybrid kind of messages that I've been giving you. We've spent a lot of time leaving this to go other passages to see if these are principles that can be applied consistently uh, and that God would approve of. Uh, now we're going to do the opposite of that and really come into the text and abandon the theme and look really in just the uh, account that's here and what we need to learn from it and also deal with a couple of difficulties. And this I wanted to do, uh, first of all, really to just get this uh, not out of the way, but to bring clarification and maybe just to muddy the waters that you didn't know was out there, but but it's uh, necessary for us to really handle this. Um, this is a, a series of accounts that create some problems for us in defending the Scriptures. Um, and you might say, well, why? And many people would take what, I'm gonna, what we're going to discuss and say, this is just more proof that the David and Goliath event was really just legend and didn't actually happen. That there was no man this tall, that it's just hyperbole, it's just this, 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 the scales are all wrong, the time frame is wrong, and it just doesn't fit into the text, and therefore it was just added to try to hype David up kind of thing. Uh, and we want to address some of these issues that they have, that some have used to uh, claim that. And why does it matter? Well, it matters because it's in your Bible. And if we start ripping out chapters of your Bible, we we'll start running into some problems. Number one problem is now, who gets to decide which chapter should be and should not be there? Should chapter 17 go or should chapter 16 and 18 go? 
uh, which verses are reliable and which ones are not. And so we're going to address full force the um, issue involved in this to uh, not necessarily resolve it all. I don't know that I can fully resolve it to everybody's uh, expectations, certainly not even maybe to my own, but I want to address it. I want to pick up in the middle of chapter 16, verse 14. We started there last week, again, focusing in our, on our theme, talking about the, <clears throat> excuse me, the five, the five uh, antagonists in Saul's life to drive him uh, really out of the ministry, out of the kingship, sorry, and to build up David for that kingship. And so let's just read a little bit. Um, we want to really focus on verse 16. Uh, that's going to be one of the issues, and, and verse 21, and then jumping into chapter 17. It says, But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and the distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And again, we talked about that last week, that the distressing spirit is not an evil spirit. God doesn't send evil spirits on men. And I'm trying to see if any of you were not here last week to catch that. I think that was very important. Uh, and I know that some of you caught that, and uh, we're glad to hear that, that the distressing spirit was there to remind Saul of truth that he was trying to reject. And that distressed him. And it troubled him in verse, in verse 15. Verse 16. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand. And when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. So Saul agrees. Good plan. Anything to give me relief from this Spirit of God that keeps troubling my heart. And again, I believe by bringing prophecy into his mind and mouth uh, of what God had already told him through Samuel. And so, verse 18 says, Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, who is, a skillful play, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. I say, well, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that we are introduced to a fairly young man in chapter 17 getting ready to take on Goliath. And the description of the servant clearly makes David a man of valor, known to be a man of valor, a man of war, skillful in that. Uh, he is skillful in playing the harp, yes, uh, but he is a man of valor, a man of war. Uh, perhaps some of the other aspects could be known, um, but these two draw attention to the fact that how can this be when David has not seen war yet? At this point, we don't anticipate uh, him being an adult because we really haven't been introduced to him outside of him being uh, anointed by Samuel in the first half of this chapter, and we find him being the youngest out there caring for the sheep. We find him in chapter 17, again, uh, being described as a young man, uh, not of age to go to war, really, is how he's described. Um, his oldest three brothers, and remember how many were there? <laughs> Seven brothers? Um, so he's, what, the eighth? And there, it's only the three oldest were out there in battle. And so the implication is that David would be fairly young. 
So the question comes forward, how does the servant identify him as a man of valor and a man of war when he is at this age? If the David and Goliath thing is next in line, uh, how does this fit? And it doesn't fit very well, does it? It's an issue. It's something we want to talk about and address a little bit. Uh, and it's going to be, I'm going to present the problems first, then we're going to talk about maybe a solution, okay? So here's the man of valor. Man of war, David. Good evening, welcome. I'm glad you're here. You must be visiting town. You guys recognize this guy, don't you? Okay. Angel. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So we have David introduced by a servant to the king. Before the David and Goliath event is given to us, he is described as a man of valor, man of war. Obviously too young to really do that, And so we're confronted with a chronology issue. Now, it gets worse. That's just the beginning of the problems that we're going to have with our text. Let's jump down to uh, verse 21. It says, So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And so we have this relationship between Saul and David that's described as a loving one, where Saul has made David his armor bearer, Saul sends to Jesse his father and says, please let David stand before me for he has found favor in my sight. And so uh, the idea is relieve David of his responsibilities at home. I want to bring him into my service, which again, by Samuel's own words, the king has a right to do that over your sons. (laughs) Uh, Relieve him of duty. He's now under my authority. He's in my service. And of course, uh, we find that Jesse did that. You might say, well, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is, is that we get to the end of chapter 17, if you want to turn a, maybe a page or two, um, in verse 55 of chapter 17, it says, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, this is Goliath, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. So the king said, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. He's carrying Goliath's head. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I'm the son of your servant Jesse the Bethlehemite. And then we go into chapter 18. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Verse 2, Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Now, do you recognize the chronological issue we have now that many critics of God's word raise and say, you see, um, Saul is an, has this loving relationship, makes him his armor bearer, sees him in his court on a regular basis, already sent to his father's house and said, I want your son to serve me. And now we go a chapter later, an event later. Now you have a guy described as a man of war, now going back to being a youth who hasn't gone to battle at all. We find Saul not knowing his name, not knowing what family he is from, uh, and then again saying, I want him in my house permanently. And textual critics come to this passage and and just think they have every uh, means of destroying uh, the validity of it. And so they want to either turn the the conversation of David and Goliath into legend that is inserted to try to uh, give some props to this guy, this young king. Um, But 
again, if we go that route, then we're in deep danger because there's a lot of scriptures we have to pull out. Uh, and by the way, we're going we're gonna to try to address some of this along the way, and then we're going to, well, we maybe not because of the video we saw, be able to get into uh, what I'd like to discuss of the David and Goliath event. But we find the, the presentation, again, of all of this history. And I want to remind you, you've heard me say this many times, that in Hebrew writing, chronology is not a primary factor. They're not primarily concerned about giving you the chronology of the events. And so the chronology of David being anointed, David being brought into king's court as a player of a harp, and David fighting Goliath, um, are not necessarily in the chronological order we see here. Now, um, there are certain indications of that, as you can see. We've already mentioned one of them, at least, and, and the other one becomes a little bit of an issue. But in chapter 17, a little earlier we find uh, a statement that uh, would seem to, depending upon how you take it, would seem to agree with the textual critics. Let's go to chapter 17, verse 14. Well, let's back up to verse 13, 12. Sorry. Now, David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons. And it sounds like we're reintroducing a guy we've already met last chapter. As if this was a story that was inserted into the text by someone else. And that's the contention. And the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went to return from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself forty days, morning and evening. Uh, then Jesse said to his son David, Now take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves and run to your brothers at the camp and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand and see how your brothers fare and bring back news of them. And of course, David obeys his father and heads on out. And of course, the verse that's going to be a problematic for us is that David occasionally went to return from Saul to feed his father's sheep. And those claim that, well, what they're trying to do is try to make this mesh with the earlier chapter the day that David was in Saul's palace occasionally. And, uh, and then he forgets that he's trying to mesh it within the storyline by the end of the chapter by verse 55 and following. Uh, most commentaries, if you read them, they're going to try to resolve this issue by saying that Saul forgot who David was. <laughs> now, I guess that's okay that Saul on the battlefield forgets who David is or doesn't recognize him in battle gear. But remember, he had a conversation with the king before he went out to battle. Do you remember when Saul says, take my gear? David says, I'm not proven in this. And I'm just going to go out the way I went out against a bear and a lion with just my sling and some stones because that's what I'm familiar with. That's what I'm capable of using. And so the idea that David wasn't recognized by Saul and that Saul forgot who he was and just needed to be reminded and Abner didn't know who he was really doesn't mess with what we know about it from the earlier, uh, earlier chapters. So we're confronted with this. And my contention would be that chapter 17 and 18, rather than being consecutive uh, rather than being 
following the, the account in chapter 16 is intermingled with it. That is that in the midst of the happenings of chapter 16, the events of chapter 17 occur. You might say, well, pastor, what are you going to do with verse 15 that David occasionally went and uh, present himself for, uh, or went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem? And again, um, we link that to David's activity in Saul's court but we don't necessarily need to link it to David's activity in Saul's court. We could very easily link it to David's activity as the go-between between his father and his brothers. Now remember, all the brothers were present at the anointing, but they were called there for the anointing, remember, for the sacrifice. And so the anointing would have happened earlier. At this point now, the brothers have gone off to war, and David, as his custom is, is, is watching the sheep which was not the condition at the end of chapter 16. He was not going home and watching the sheep, was he? He was permanently in Saul's service. And so somewhere between the anointing of chapter 16, verse 13, and the message to Jesse in chapter 16, verse 22, we have the event of David and Goliath. And I would contend that that brings forth this message, this idea that, listen, not only this guy, a man of valor, a man of war, a man who, uh, a young man who has shown the Lord is with him, uh, but he also plays an instrument and is brought into Saul for that very purpose. And again, the Hebrew writers follow theme before chronology. They're not worried about what order things happen in. They're worried about the theme. And the theme in chapter 16 is very clear. God has anointed David and abandoned Saul. That's the theme. The first half of the chapter is David's anointing. The second half of the chapter is the, is the distressing spirit coming upon Saul uh, to remind him that he is no longer God's man. Uh, he's to be respected, obeyed. Uh, honored as the king by the people, certainly, but in God's eyes, um, you're no longer uh, the one that I have uh, granted the kingdom to in, lo- in the long term. That's going to be moved on to David. And so the author wants to draw these uh, two contrasts forward. But it is evident that somewhere in this process of Samuel anointing David and David coming into Saul's court, the David and Goliath event occur. And in conjunction with that, we have both of them referring to the fact that Saul wants David close to him. He makes him his armor bearer at the end of chapter 16, sends a message to Jesse saying, I want David permanently here. By the end of chapter 17, we have almost the same thing. We have, or I'm sorry, going to chapter 18, we have the statement saying that uh, Saul takes him that day, not going to let him go to his father's house anymore. Uh, Jonathan and David made a covenant together, uh, and he's now known within the household. And rather than seeing these as conflicting, we need to see these as intertwined. That these events, we tend to view Scripture very ordered in time because that's the way we write history books so if you go to your history book they don't follow a theme do they 
Um, every one of us took history in high school. Um, they didn't follow themes. They didn't follow uh, eco- the economy over the period. Then come back and follow uh, military over the history of the, and then follow this theme. No, they followed it chronologically. And so here, we come to this with an expectation as a historical book, everything's going to be in chronological order, um, but not necessarily. The Hebrew writing just didn't follow that. And so uh, we're going to, we see that in some other, in Genesis as well, with the accounts of, of uh, the later accounts of uh, the children, the 12 men, and uh, their encounters with the people of Canaan. Uh, we'll see that, of course, in the prophets extensively, just that that's not a priority. It's kind of a secondary uh, structure. The primary structure is we're going to introduce this theme. And the theme was that Saul disobeyed and therefore God removed his name from being king uh, permanently from his family's household. He failed to obey. And uh, the likelihood is that these two tests of his obedience were somewhat separated in time. So we don't have an issue really here of of someone making up a story and throwing it in here to prop up a young new king. Rather, a thematic presentation of history. That here's what God did with Saul. And here's the introduction. We we have his anointing back there. We find him being a, a man of music, a musician. In the end of the chapter, we have his introduction to the court. But... He's described as a man of valor. Well, what made him a man of valor? How could he be described by the servant as a great man of valor? Well, David and Goliath, he took on the biggest Philistine there was and killed him. And certainly Saul would have known that David was that young man, but he would not have known of David's musical abilities. And so the servant says, hey, I got the guy and you already know him and and, of course, uh, we find this relationship developed between them. And so I, I would tend more towards that position than saying, well, Saul has a short memory over people who he loves and brings in that you don't remember your armor bearer and what family he's from. Uh, rather, we want to see this as an intertwining of events that happened um, over a period of time in the transition from David being anointed king to the home interactions between him and Saul and Jonathan that we're going to get into in chapter uh, 18 and 19 when we find the, the hostility start to arise between them. And so we have multiple events that are pulling together, uh, really pulling David into Saul's life. That Saul is, is benefiting from David uh, by the victory over the Philistine, benefiting from him by giving him a way of escaping, so to speak, the troubling spirit that God sent in his life so that he could uh, uh, see David as a benefactor in his life. Someone to trust, someone to bring in close into his very household that his own son has attached himself to. And so now the relationship between David and Saul is well established. Uh, and being less concerned with the chronology of how these things happen and in what order... Um, we really want to see them as a unit being brought together. These are intertwining events. The order in which they happen wasn't so important as this process that God uses to bring David into Saul's life. 
as a trusted benefactor, that this is a young man that is your replacement, Saul, but Saul isn't quite ready to understand that. When he does come to understand it, that's when he's going to have a lot of animosity towards David. There's not going to be a love there. There's going to be a hate there. There's not going to be, I want to bring you in closer, but I want to push you away. In fact, I want to kill you to protect my family's claim to the kingship, I want to thwart God. But of course, the the spirit would come upon him and he would need David again and again. And so we, we find really this theme of drawing in close. So when we get to the middle of chapter 18, now we hear David being described as this powerful uh, leader of an army. And I say, this is the kid? Well, obviously, some time has gone by to the point that the people of Israel knew who David was and that he had gained a reputation over the Philistines in leading armies out. And so, yes, there is some chronological issues here, and but, we, but again, they aren't issues to the Hebrew mind. <laughs> they weren't that big a deal to them. They're a big deal to us, but if we make them the big deal of the passage, then yeah, we end up having to rip out one or two chapters because they don't fit a timeline together unless Saul is just losing his mind. And some people prefer that, and they claim that that's kind of what the distressing spirit is, that he's kind of going insane and can't even recognize David when he's already been in his house, already made him his armor bearer, already sent the message, and now he's lost track of all that like he's got Alzheimer's. That's not the distressing spirit here that's being discussed. Because Saul is prophesying his own house, uh, and again, uh, that is not the work of God to uh, bring evil into our life, but rather to remind us of truth. And yes, to be reminded of truth is distressing, right? If you are in opposition to that truth. If you're living in antagonism, to truth, you don't want to be reminded of it. And so we blurt out things like, who made you judge over me? Take the beam out of your own eye. And I've heard that plenty as a pastor, by the way. Those are people's favorite things to rehearse to me when I come to them, confront them about sin in their life. Um, we go on the defensive and we remember those passages. We pull them out of context. We abuse them and use them. And it's like... I'm not here to attack you. I'm here to rebuke you, which is a very different thing. Rebuke has a purpose, and that is to bring repentance and restoration. To attack is just to tear you down and destroy you. And so Saul was opposing the truth, and I don't see him going crazy here. And uh, we see him uh, doing very calculated things. We see him getting angry over uh, slights that were genuine slights. It wasn't things he imagined. Um, he, he knew who David was, that, that all, what all this meant. He understood that this meant that David was God's man and there's genuine animosity there. Saul's not going crazy. That's not the answer to this problem. Rather, the answer to the problem is to come to this text with a Hebrew mindset. Recognize that a Hebrew person wrote this. An Israelite wrote this, and chronology is not that critical to them. And it's okay to insert a, a story and, and that seems out of place and seems out of order. 
because they want to carry this theme. First, Saul disobeyed and was rejected of God. Then that was prophesied to him and he ignored it. Wanted to be honored before the people. God then says, anoint his replacement. The replacement is anointed. And as the replacement is anointed, this evil spirit comes on Saul. What the time frame is between when the spirit came on him and the servants came up with an idea to solve that and recognized what it was finally, and the, resol- the, the servant came forward with that knowledge. We don't know what that time frame was, how long that took. And certainly within that context, we could easily find the story of David and John, or David and Goliath, um, somewhere within there, by the time the servant says, this is a guy of great valor and a man of war. This is someone known to us. And so, rather than trying to manipulate or abandon Scripture, rather than trying to um, impose some other ideas that even put blame on God for for, uh, Saul going insane or giving him an evil spirit, all of that, any of those run us into grave danger. Grave danger on one side and grave danger on the other. On one side, we're going to abandon Scripture. And that just leads to all sorts of trouble, because now we can question any part of this book. On the other side, we're accusing God of evil. (laughs) i got big theological problems with that. God judges, but he's not going to bring an evil spirit on somebody. He's not going to demon-possess someone. That is not the nature of our God. And by the way, before this is all said and done, we're going to find Saul prophesying with the prophets, and they're going to again say, is Saul a prophet? And so this is not in the nature of God, and the scriptures are defendable and reliable, and therefore uh, we come to uh, our position with those guardrails up. <laughs> I'm not going to hold to this, this d- But rather, there must be a different way of handling this passage that they're ignoring. Nor am I going to accuse God of evil. So I have those two guardrails. Now within that, how do I address the issues that are being brought forward? And certainly, if you look at other texts, we find that this is acceptable in the Hebrew writing style. And in fact, it's their pattern. That we always make chronology secondarily important to theme. And it's obvious that the writer of 1 Samuel wants to carry this theme of the transition, introducing David on multiple issues, and rather than taking chronology to introduce them, he's introducing David first as the anointed, second as a talented young man, third as a great warrior. You think God had purpose in introducing him in that way? even though he's known as a great warrior, when he's introduced as a talented musician? Well, let me ask you, which role is most important in David's life to you? That he was a great warrior or that he was a talented musician? Which one of those is more important to you? His talented musician. And because of that, we have a bunch of Chapters in the Bible called the Psalms. (laughs) 
David's role as the harpist court musician is of great value. Much greater than his role as a great warrior. And so it makes sense to us thematically to say, well, what's if we're going to say what's introduced first is most important, I would contend that the author introduced what was most important about David first. And it wasn't that he shot down Goliath with a slingshot. What's most important about David is that he was a talented musician in the court of Saul. And he did more for the kingdom of God there in that role than he ever did out there in battle with the Philistines. And so to me it makes sense that if I'm introducing this character that's a very important character in the Old Testament, I'm going to focus on what I want to be what I want to be known as important. First of all, he's an anointed of God. He's an obedient son who's out there doing his job that his dad wanted him to do. Um, he was humble and and all of his appearance was there. It's described for us. But he's the anointed one. He's the one God has chosen. And secondly, of all of his capabilities, which were expansive, the one that is of greatest value to all of us historically is his role as a musician. And what David did for Saul by playing his harp, I want to share with you, David still does for people today when they read the Psalms. It still quiets our hearts. It still gives comfort. It still calms troubled waters. It still does it today, doesn't it? And so I agree with the way David's been introduced to us. Because it has given priority to his greatest benefit to humanity. It was not as a warrior king. In fact, that disqualified him from building the temple, didn't it? It was his role as harpist for the king and musician and writer of scripture. And so I I concur very well with this presentation of how we introduce to David, the anointed one, the musician from which you get your psalms, and then the great warrior. And it's interesting that we sing only a boy named David, only a little boy, only a little he, with a sling. And uh, one of the little things is say he could play and sing, or pray and sing. Which one is it? He could play. I always say play and sing, but um, play the harp and sing, not play marbles or whatever. Sing. Um, we write a song and we sing a song about him knocking down Goliath. But the priority to Goliath is David's role as the harpist, as the instrumentalist, as the musician, because there he ministers still today to us through the Psalms. Knocking down Goliath, it was a great ministry then, and it established him as a man of valor and a man of war, and God was with him, and it certainly helped Israel in that day but it doesn't do a whole lot for me today. But his place as the musician before the Lord, before the king, helps me tremendously today as I go into the scriptures. So I hope that resolves that. Maybe you've never been confronted with all of that, but it's out there, and the textual critics are attacking the Bible, and this is one of their points of attack. And I think it's necessary for us to address it better than just with Saul forgot who David was. 
Um, that's kind of a pathetic response, I think. And there's much more substance to the way the Bible's written and presented to us, and it's worthwhile for us to study that out. Right? Let's have a word of prayer. We'll be dismissed. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word, that it is reliable and trustworthy. And Lord, I thank you for its truth, of what it reveals about you, and that you are a God that can be known, that will not violate who you are and what you have revealed yourself to be like. And so, Lord, we thank you. Uh, We also thank you for this record, a faithful record, of how you worked in these days in, in Israel. And, Lord, we thank you for this example of David. And, Lord, we know that he is going to fail in many respects, but also that he is going to uh, do what is right and pleasing and be called a friend of God. And so, Lord, we see within his failures our shortcomings. And, Lord, help us, though, to see the necessity of doing great things in your name that the Spirit of the Lord is upon us. We praise this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.